Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. It is our last episode in February 2023, our first episode after the official one-year anniversary of Russia's special military operation in Ukraine. Big kind of year marker for the podcast and the context of it and everything. Dmitry, how are you? I'm doing great, Conrad, and it's it's a wonderful sort of four-month anniversary for us, I suppose, at this point. You know, uh, some of the work we've been putting in, at least since the time of the Russian mobilization and Surovikin coming in charge of the SMO. And, you know, it is the end of February, so that does mark the one-year anniversary of the special military operation. And you can always say, like, the changing of the world order, essentially, maybe the beginning of multipolarity. But there's a lot to talk about here, exactly, about those things and more that has happened in the last week. There's so much to discuss, and I'm glad it's just the two of us. We can really get into the details and kind of break it down. Yeah, no, this past week has really been, I mean, stuff that we've talked about on the show in the past, Transnistria, China weighing in, all sorts of things being fulfilled that, you know, we're going to bring in a few saints, talk about some of those kinds of things, as well as the nitty gritty of what China said, some of Putin's speech, of course, which got a lot of hype and, you know, may have disappointed a few people. But afterwards, big things still happened that, you know, perhaps just weren't actually, you know, belted out in a speech. So things are still changing and shifting. It seems that uh, the U.S. is getting a bit more anxious about the future after all this China stuff. So with all that being said, I think uh, we want to talk about Putin's speech. It was uh, an hour and a half. It was quite long. Uh, it was very quickly translated, put all around the world, people were seeing it. I, of course, had to see it later. It was 3 a.m. where I was, but it was uh, it was a big deal. It was kind of the equivalent of the Russian State of the Union. Dimitri, do you want to talk about any of the highlights and the general understanding, maybe regarding as well the hype that it had around it? Yeah, I think the Putin's presentation um, had enormous hype. Firstly, just because it was Putin's kind of address in the last few months, the only one that's come since a few of the Russian terrible losses that have occurred on the front, for example, the fall of Kherson, as well as the great sort of tactical loss at Uglidar, and some of the difficulties Russia has been facing around Bakhmut, you know, as of the last three months, not being able to take it, and, you know, kind of questions as to what's happening in the Russian military leadership, you know, the switching from Surovikin to Gerasimov, as well as some of the other shuffles, um, people not being sure exactly who's in charge, and again, Putin comes in, you know, like a wrecking ball, essentially, with a one-and-a-half-hour annual sort of federal presentation to the entirety of Russia. And the reason why it was so hyped, in my in my belief at least, was to kind of present to the average people of Russia who aren't on Telegram, who aren't really online, who aren't, say, really sort of tapped into the news and who, you know, watch traditional mainstream media, for example, it, you know, Maybe the majority of Putin's voting base, you know, people over the ages of 60 who aren't too well versed on the Internet, as well as perhaps Ukrainians and people in the new oblasts like Zaporozhye, Kherson, Donetsk, Lugansk, for them as well. So, And we saw videos of actual Russian soldiers watching the presentation from the war front. So this footage was of Putin's speech was actually played in Ukraine. Now, of course, a lot of Ukrainians understand Russian. So what kind of a message would they have received from Putin? Well, the message was obviously an optimistic and a positive one that, look, despite all of the difficulties of the sanctions and of the last year of the uh, you know, 200 to 300 billion US dollars of Russian investments being frozen overseas, so that's almost, and you know, Putin did emphasize 
this money was almost equivalent even more than the amount that the U.S. as well as other international, uh, you know, Western nations have donated to Ukraine. So the West not only has donated all this money in military aid and humanitarian aid to Ukraine over the last year, but it also has frozen these Russian assets. Putin made note of that, amongst other things. But the speech, I think generally the vibe I got from it was, hey, nothing drastic is going to happen, but things are generally doing okay for Russia and uh, they will continue to be, you know, things are under control. So nothing's really, um, it's, it's kind of like a calming speech for both Russians as well as pro-Russian Ukrainians who maybe weren't sure about how the entire SMO was going, especially um, keeping in mind some of the recent losses and maybe the lack of successes on the war front. And in many ways, Russia is making very consistent, slow, again, no big arrows, but very methodical progress along almost the entirety of the front line at this point. Bakhmut is very close to being operationally operationally surrounded, Bakhmut, and we are kind of uh, waiting for what a lot of people in the West have talked about, the winter offensive, or now it's kind of coming more to be the spring offensive, and after Putin's speech, he, uh, well, not after, the big thing in Putin's speech was pulling out of the START treaty, which has to do with nuclear inspections, and that got a lot of hubbub and roar from the Americans saying that, oh, the the security infrastructure of the world has now been shattered, or all sorts of things, which they've said a million kinds of those statements since the SMO started, so I don't know exactly what they think we think that means. But, you know, Russia is just making it very clear that we we being the Russians are not going to be taking orders about where we can deploy like our most advanced weapon systems and, you know, willing to, and I believe Putin made mention of, you know, first strikes. And at one point, I believe recently he reevaluated or rewrote some of the protocol about what it takes for us to Russians to do a preemptive strike. So there's definitely, I mean, the rhetoric is ramping up slowly, but surely Putin, he's, you know, he's slow walking it perhaps more than some of us, who are, you know, hoping to see a quick victory for a, a myriad of reasons, one of them, of course, being the church on the ground there. You know, he's slow walking it a bit for some of us, but some would, many would argue there's no method to the madness, which is also true, as the guys on Russians with Attitude say that Russians are good at just winging it. But as some of the stuff with China has developed afterwards, I think some of these plans might be actually coming together and there might be more of a long-term vision coming to the fore that may not have been the vision that started at the beginning of the SMO. Yeah, that's right. Some of the cooperation recently with China in terms of the diplomatic propositions of the uh, Chinese People's Republic, as well as, you know, the reaction of the West towards those propositions, which we will discuss in a little bit, and sort of Putin's attitude towards international relations and law, where Putin essentially accuses the West of breaking international standards and laws, and he does play that victim, which... Russian politicians have been doing for a very long time, perhaps since Putin's, uh, you know, presentation all those years ago for the first time when he kind of broke away from the West um, uh, around around the Obama years, and as well as well, for, you know throughout the Syrian campaign, Putin always said, you know, and even during the Libyan, the, the great uh, sort of how do we call it desolation of Libya, Putin kept mentioning the fact that the West needs to follow international standards, and this speech, of course, with Putin again threatening to rip up the the START nuclear treaty, there is that consideration that, hey, the West is actually the particular side which first goes against these international norms, not Russia. So Putin does have this. And yeah, you may you may say, look, it's a, it's a certain 
Putin's strategy is to play the victim and to show Russia as the, the you know the virtue signaling a higher ground sort of holding nation here or the you know higher ground holding civilization. And you're right, Conrad. The Chinese seem to like that. In, in fact, the Chinese seem to appreciate the fact that hey, they're actually on the right side of history, so to speak. Not taking anything from Ben Shapiro, but the Chinese really like that sort of rhetoric, and they always use it in regards to Taiwan, where they say Taiwan is an illegitimate state. And Hong Kong was, of course, the treaty was, you know, the treaty expired. Therefore, we need to take it legitimately. There is a sense between Russia and China that things need to be done in a legitimate format, not sort of through power play. There is some sort of maybe it's a weird communist legalism there, but they do seem to want to abide by these standards and norms, which the West, again, the West seems to break these norms a bit more often, as we see with Ukraine. Of course, war crimes are essentially, uh, you know, just everywhere, all kinds of war crimes from, you know, the shooting of civilians to, of course, POWs to shooting actual missiles from highways and people hiding, you know, we saw Ukrainian military folks, of course, hiding in ambulances and things of this nature, like the war crimes, the breaching of the Geneva Conventions, which even the Nazis kept during World War II, and some, you know, in some sense, at least formally, these things aren't being, of course, abided by by Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russians and the Chinese seem to be following these international, at least in a military sense, these laws quite closely. And I, I do think in a way Putin um, signaling this uh, higher standard of, hey, we actually do follow international law and you guys don't. I think it, there, this is part of the long plan because certainly... Uh, there was no, there was no this idea where he's going to say, "Hey, the Chinese will assist us, and we're going to let's create Ukraine again on the anniversary." No, that wasn't the message, and surely we haven't seen this in the last twenty-four hours. So that's definitely not on the cards. It's right, it's a long play. I think we're going to see the Chinese and the Russians, and they know, we all know, that the rules-based international order is nothing more than sort of the procedural game that you know the elites and the people that really run the world in. D.C., New York, London, and Tel Aviv, you know, that that th- they can get away with everything. You know, everyone plays the little game, and then the people that don't have to play the game actually do things, right? And so what Russia and China are trying to do is delegitimize the U.S. in the eyes of everybody else that has to participate in the quote-unquote rules-based order, because obviously the person that enforces the rules-based order being, at this point, the U.S. global American empire, are obviously not abiding by the rules that they impose on everybody else. And of course, they recognize that as multipolarity rises, there's a population advantage that you would call the multipolar world would have. So I think from an economics perspective, they can use that obviously to leverage against sanctions. But now, in many ways, China having, with the visit of Wang uh, Wang Xi and then Xi Jinping's upcoming visit to see Putin, we see that China is warming up to the whole multipolar thing and the unity of Eurasia against what they perceive as the Anglo-American empire and Russia and China. I mean, China specifically before we talked about at the, uh, I can't remember what number, but it was the communist party of China conference with a big general assembly where Xi Jinping really cemented his power. There was no mention of, you know, multipolarity confronting the West or this kind of stuff. But more recently at all of these statements from China, that's been very much at the forefront. So, and in the same way, when we know that at the beginning of this conflict, Putin and the Russian military and the Kremlin wanted to kind of do this surgical, but 
humanitarian operation that would quickly cause perhaps a regime change or surrender in Ukraine so that the problem that was creeping NATO involvement and NATO weapons on their border would go away. We know that didn't work. And it seems that now in the past, you know, maybe six months, Putin finally actually came to the, to the conclusion that no, this is, uh, this is that big civilizational confrontation that we've been holding off for a long time that kind of we all took a break from and played nice and pretended to be enemies in the Soviet Union. And now it's really coming to the forefront. And in many ways, Putin doesn't seem that Putin wanted to be the guy that did that. I think he maybe wanted to be the guy to prepare Russia to have that confrontation. So in, in many ways, we're seeing now him lean into what's happening now. And he seems to have finally... Again, I don't know the exact nature of the negotiations behind the scenes, but he seems to have really moved the uh, moved the uh, the ropes, as it were, when it comes to getting China on board for this confrontation with the West. Yeah, it, it did seem at the beginning that China was holding off, almost you know, and at at the moment, almost not commenting, as well as not sanctioning Russia at all, and even the uh, you know Secretary of NATO actually recently criticized China, saying that look. Uh, the reason we're not going to take this peace, uh, peace treaty seriously, you know, that you've proposed for Ukraine and Russia is because, well, mind you, this is this is the funny part, right? It's the NATO secretary, of course, speaking for China, uh, speaking for Russia and Ukraine here, right? As the as the as Ukraine's boss, right? Would he's of course saying that, hey, we shouldn't take this peace treaty seriously because China has, of course, lost all legitimacy based on its aggression towards Taiwan, at least rhetorically, and also based on its, um, you know at least unspoken support for Russia throughout the special military operations. So NATO is trying to, of course, delegitimize China's attempts to get involved in some sort of, in a similar capacity, you could say to Turkey, which remember before Turkey would, of course, uh, host these great exchanges of POWs between Russia and Ukraine. At one point, the largest exchange was 200 um, Russian soldiers exchanged for 800, you know, Ukrainian soldiers. This happened uh, right before Christmas, I believe, last year. So these huge exchanges were, of course, negotiated in Turkey via Turkish ombudsmen and diplomats, as well as Russian and Ukrainian uh, military officials. And China perhaps is trying to get involved as well in this sort of capacity. And look, these 12 points, these 12 point peace plan that it proposed for Ukraine and not and that not being accepted of course gives China more legitimacy that hey look China actually did have positive you know it did have a positive model at least that it wanted to propose for Ukraine and Russia but Ukraine soundly you know declined them meanwhile Russia's on on the end of of course uh, yeah, Lavrov actually openly said that hey we're open to negotiate with Ukraine, but Zelensky doesn't wish to do that. So again, Russia is here standing on the high ground of, say, this international norms order, this uh, having all the virtue, having all the, I guess, uh, brownie points for actually following the rules. Meanwhile, Ukraine, of course, is just, you know, it's like this stubborn kid in the corner having a tantrum. And this imagery, of course, is exported overseas to great, of course, some, some of the great Muslim powers, such as Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran, which Iran is, again, interested in joining BRICS. Pakistan, of course, is watching very closely. And, of course, you have great nations like India, Indonesia, Brazil, and you know even Brazil with its president being a little bit anti-Putin at the moment, Lula, Lula. There's a lot to discuss there. But all of these nations are, of course, closely watching, and they're watching Ukraine have a tantrum, asking for more weapons, you know, almost on a continuous basis and almost in every presentation. Meanwhile, a peace plan appears, and... The Ukrainian politicians outright reject it, as well as their, their NATO overlords as well, a comment on the inappropriate nature of the actual peace agreements and how, 
you know, Russia is the is still at fault and how these agreements will should not even take place in the first place. So, again, all these, uh, I guess you can call them second world, third world nations, are watching very closely. We're talking about billions of people are watching Ukraine have attention, which I think will give, of course, a lot of international legitimacy points to Russia and to China long term. Well, like you said, many people have commented that after the Istanbul talks with Turkey, Ukraine and Russia broke down, that was when Russia decided, oh, I guess we need to fight this thing out in a real way. And that really also, I think that proved to Turkey that that showed them what was really going on. And now we see Erdogan and his government really turning against the U.S. even more than perhaps they might have been before, as you might say, the most anti-U.S., U.K., NATO member. But when it comes to the actual Chinese plan, we'll talk about that in a little bit again, it's calling it a peace plan is a bit almost an exaggeration by the West because they don't want to acknowledge what it really is, which is just kind of a basic laying out of principles that confront America and what they do everything and everything. But America also has recently doubled down on their uh, Taiwan adventures. They have talked about putting more troops there, giving them more weapons, openly talking about defying China. And it seems that China has actually started cutting uh, internet cables that connect Taiwan to the mainland and even to parts of Japan. So the, the, the we're seeing what World War Three looks like. And it's again, I stand by what Metropolitan Neofito said, as we were already in the second year, like it's just between hybrid warfare, psyops, again, we're seeing all the crazy infrastructure warfare in America. There's, we really are seeing like what 21st century warfare looks like, and we're in the middle of it. And that's not to say that it doesn't also get hotter and bloodier and with more lives lost, but we're already seeing well over hundreds and hundreds of thousands dead at this point in Ukraine and the peripheral conflicts. So we're well beyond, I think, Vietnam even at this point, as far as relevant post-World War II deadly conflicts go. But for China, we of course had the visit by the Chinese foreign minister to Russia after Putin's speech, after Biden's speech. Of course, he was in Ukraine and Poland and of course had to call Putin and make sure that he was going to be safe. But then they still played the fake air raid siren when he came out to talk. All of course a big show. But they really had him hopped up on the stuff too, you know. He uh he didn't fall down the stairs. There was that video that was somebody else that fell down the stairs. He only fell up the stairs, so he almost made it. But the yeah, it was a big, you know, kind of a big weekend and week when it comes to the uh the the American consciousness and the war. You know, Americans they kind of forget and forget, forget until our State Department does something big and then oh suddenly everyone's waving their blue and gold flags again. But Dimitri, I'm wondering your thoughts on the 12 points that the Chinese put forward and what it kind of means for how you think they may be getting involved in the SMO in the next year or in 2023 in general. I think, firstly, it's important to notice that uh, at least most of the points have to do with at least rebuilding exports and imports, which, of course, this is where China reigns supreme, obviously, as the market leader in the world, only maybe second to the United States. And just recall one of the early episodes we had about Russia actually contracting 300, 500 North Korean military and police officers to come rebuild Donbass. Now, just imagine contracting thousands of Chinese workers to actually come rebuild some of the areas. Of course, if, if, if a peace talk was arranged, China's saying here, at the 12th point actually in the 
in the actual um, you know peace plan, so called, is of course promoting post-conflict reconstruction. Now, who will be who will be undertaking this reconstruction? Well, probably the cheapest contracts available and probably the most efficient ones, based on what we've seen in China and you know kind of the reputation of Turkish construction kind of uh, going downhill, unfortunately, recently is is of course the Chinese you know contractees and you know these. Uh, these workers may be coming actually in from China if peace talks are organized to rebuild cities like Bakhmut, of course, finishing off Mariupol and some of the other conflict points, which, of course, we'll see develop over the course of the war. Now, again, there's also this idea, you know, we spoke about the grain exports and the sanctions, how they're affecting grain. Um, there's a huge risk, which we spoke about at the beginning of the war, at least on Twitter and kind of before the uh, World War Now podcast even began, was there is a risk because Ukraine is one of the greatest wheat and grain exports in the world. And actually Ukraine being engulfed completely by war and for economic activity to be halted, there is a great fear in countries in like China, India, which actually buy Ukrainian wheat and grain, that uh, there may be, there's a large threat of famines, actually, like, uh, there is a great fear for especially the 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 great uh, sort of economic ebbs and flows in these nations, which, you know, we're talking about contracts which last for years and there's billions of dollars involved. So China actually mentioning grain exports in the 12-year plan, I think, is really interesting. So I just wanted to focus at least on the economic side of things. Of course, notice even keeping nuclear power plants safe. China really isn't interested in the whole green piece, obviously, as we as we know, global warming, that whole idea it's been kind of thrown under the bus during the great pandemic of the recent years, but as well as during this war, it was, of course, understood that, hey, this energy crisis will, of course, be promoting fossil fuels as well as nuclear energy. I think China is very interested in, of course, the uh, potential of, uh, you know, the nuclear industry actually developing around the world, starting from Ukraine. And Ukraine, I believe, has as many nuclear reactors as Russia does, at least it's very nuclearized. So uh, Ukraine during the Soviet period was very, you know, its nuclear reactors are actually quite good, so to speak, and China has many itself. So I think there is some mutual interest. Almost all of the points benefit China in some way. Notice even point number two, Conrad, abandoning the Cold War mentality. Now, who is affected the most by Cold War mentality? Obviously China in a negative fashion, because Cold War mentality, of course, we speak about McCarthyism, kind of bashing Bolshevism, bashing communism, and China very much still embraces that five-pointed red star, at least doctrinally, you know, speaking, this image that, hey, we're still somewhat communist, at least, you know, Xi uh, Jinping, of course, mentions Karl Marx, and he himself wrote several treaties on Marxism. So there is that consideration that China needs to somehow benefit from all of this. At the same time, it needs to be very, very much veiled. So I'm not saying China is the bad guy here, but China definitely has self-interest. At least these 12 points, most of them in some way benefit China long term. So that's my kind of outlook on it. China wouldn't propose this after one year of sitting down quietly. Now it wants to get involved. It wants to actually invest in particular, maybe in, even in the peaceful side of things, maybe not so much militarily. I suppose we'll see. But uh, China does want to get something out of this big pie, which the world has been involved in recently. Well, I think in general, you know, the what the Chinese won't admit quite yet is that they probably ran the numbers and realized if Russia loses, it's a like in a real bad way, it's not good for them. Because if Russia loses in a really bad way, and I mean like a really bad way where the U.S. actually achieves its strategic goals that it has for Russia, like possible balkanization, total regime change, I mean, that's it for China's northern flank. You suddenly have this, you know, extended border that China has with, you know, the far east of Russia and Siberia that is now offensively, effectively now a hostile 
power that you don't have any anywhere to retreat from if they come at you from the Pacific, where the U.S. Navy, of course, reigns supreme still. And China puts this forward, and like Dimitri said, they talk about rebuilding. I could totally see that being the first thing that China does to like tacitly and show their soft support for Russia is they send you know rebuilding troops or rebuilding you know police or anything like that to the Donbass or the regions that are now have been annexed into Russia because that would be in their mind something that if the U.S. were to protest would be good optics for them. The U.S. like oh what just because that. The army that you don't like is there. It means we can't rebuild the homes for the civilians. That, based on what we've said before, that seems like what the Chinese and the Russians, they would like to kind of perpetuate that image and continue to, in their eyes, at least delegitimize the West. And I know you mentioned Lula and Brazil and everything and some of these other, you know, just the general rise of multipolarity there. And it seems the Lula-Brazil thing for Putin that should really seal the coffin on this silly idea of the of the international communist left or like the international anti-imperialist left like these people are scumbags they will sell you out for petty criminals and interests obviously if the u.s can offer them a bigger bag they'll take it and you can't just you know like to meet you said sure china does still you know try their best to embrace marxism but let's be real china's more of a racialist you know let's switch the words around social nationalist state you know as we could say and they have no interest either necessarily in promoting the international left. You know, we might still see this in vestiges of media like RT or some other Chinese state media that exploit, you know, racial tensions in Western or South American countries. But anyone can see through that as insincere, you know, as as, as literal propaganda. But when Wang Yi uh, was in Moscow, I think one of the statements that it, it almost got lost after all the actual you know, quote unquote, peace plans and these state, these 12 point talks and statements came out. But he literally said regarding like multipolarity and looking out at a, you know, a new future as the unipolar one goes away that Moscow and Beijing need to synchronize their watches and that they're a lot that, you know, their growing alliance will withstand like any, you know, any shifting sands that the changing world order might encounter. So there's very big things happening. And I can't, multiple people are saying this. I believe Dima of the military summary channel was talking about this as well, but he says that one of the main reasons is that China is afraid of missing out on the opportunity to test out some of their weapons or get their hands on some military information on some of these NATO weapons that they themselves perhaps think that they're going to encounter in the next decade in the Pacific. And they would be interested in seeing how perhaps some of their weapons untested. Remember, China hasn't engaged in any major military conflicts in the past, however, so many years, at least against any kind of reasonable military power. So they really don't know how some of their high-tech weapons or systems or tactics even would actually fare in a battle against NATO. And Ukraine is, for better or for worse, becoming a perfect place for these for these other military powers to perhaps try some of their toys out. And, you know, we've seen for the first time some of this drone warfare, anti-drone warfare, all sorts of, I saw at the beginning of the conflict, I saw all sorts of stories of people trying to get their hands on this data and this, this information on how, as I said before, this 21st century, this fifth generation of warfare is going to go on. So it's very interesting. Of course, something else very interesting happened after the speech that I thought would have been even more interesting for Putin's speech. But Dimitri, if you have anything else to say on China, let's hear it. Yeah, just as you said, uh, China's any future encounters with NATO as well as NATO weaponry, of course, the first place where China will encounter that will be in their future, maybe even 
soonish, you know, it's coming up, right? Their assault on Taiwan. I think Taiwan obviously is armed to the teeth with US up to date weapons, anti air, you know, missiles, things of this nature. So, of course, there are these considerations. But we should, of course, uh, keep in mind, as you said, Putin and as well as future, future Russian, future Russian leaders need to keep in mind there are these. There are these fears that at least Russians have had for a long time. Even uh, the Professor Mendeleev, the one who, the great chemical professor who created, you know, chemist professor, apologies for, to my terminology, but the great chemist who created the table of elements, he actually projected that if the Russian, you know, this is before the revolution as well, he projected that if the Russian population was to grow organically as it has in the 19th century, the population of Russia would be somewhere around 400 to 600 million by 1960. Now, Naturally, that never happened due to the machinations of the New World Order, as well as Freemasonic and other dark occult powers in the world, which we shall not name. So the Russian population is, of course, under well under 200 million at this point. So, But where is the actual danger here? The long-term danger Mendeleev, of course, kept emphasizing was that Siberia was not well-developed, and Siberia needs to be both... Um, inhabited by Russians, well-developed. It needs to be industrialized to the point where Russians... It is Russian land. It needs to be... Russians need to be well-established there with their roots. And, of course, Russians have lived in Siberia for well over 200, 300 years now. Now, the population of Siberia is even less than that of Canada combined. Of course, we're talking about east of the Ural Mountains. So what's the great danger of long-term for Russia in, in this particular area of the world? Well, it's, of course, Asian expansion, which we saw during the World War II when the Japanese, of course, wanted to expand north into Korea and Manchuria and even had plans of taking the Kurils Islands as well as Kamchatka and some of those areas in Siberia. But even more dire, of course, would be a potential conflict in the future against China, which the natural and most most lucrative expansion point for the Chinese for the Chinese people would be Siberia. It's scarcely inhabited by Russians. It's of course rich with resources, much richer than some places in the world, and it's basically virgin land which can be of course exploited. Chinese could immigrate there. It's uh, essentially just there for the taking, which Russians have treated Siberia as a gift from God, which, you know, it, it naturally it is. It's it's a huge gift that, you know, somehow has fallen upon the shoulders of the Russian people that they've almost without any conflict expanded eastwards and inhabited these great lands, built churches. And of course, it's a great inheritance. But if we don't use that inheritance, like in the parable about the talents, when the master does arrive, you know, he's going to throw us into the fire. And so that is the consideration of the Russian people. And this is reflected in the prophecies that some recent Russian saints have actually mentioned, the great saint which we reference all the time on the podcast, St. Seraphim of Viritsa, actually gave a very dire prophecy. He said that if the Russian people don't come to God en masse and, of course, repent for some of the sins that they've committed, he lived in the 1940s and 30s, so he actually lived under Nazi occupation. So he saw both the degeneracy of the Soviets as well as the crimes and the horrors of World War II. So he's, of course, seen everything, including the revolution. And St. Seraphim said that, you know, and this is with clairvoyance and the gift of God, he said that the Chinese will potentially have a big war with Russia and they will take Siberia all the way to the Urals. So, of course, a, a gigantic, I'm kind of paraphrasing the prophecy here, you can easily find it online. Maybe in a future podcast or a special episode, we'll read out these prophecies in full, but essentially he does say that there will be a conflict in the future, potentially, if the Russians don't repent and Siberia will become Chinese. And he also mentions in the prophecy that Russia will seek assistance from the West, and the West will be quiet and they won't assist Russia and the Chinese will take Siberia and they will exploit the land and Russians will be, have to become refugees in Europe again. 
they will have to retreat back to their old borders in, in which they lived, you know, prior to the 15th century. So a horrible prophecy. And it was actually mirrored by another elder who noticed St. Seraphim of Viritsa. He was ostensibly from Belarus and Ukraine. And another Western Russian saint, so to speak, Elder uh, Archimandrite Seraphim, Tapuchkin. He also, he died in 1982, but he also lived throughout the Soviet period and he never even saw the fall of the Berlin Wall and all of this. So this great um, Archimandrite monk priest, Seraphim, he actually did speak again of the fact that the Chinese will immigrate and maybe not even through militaristic needs but also like labor immigration he mentioned how the chinese will slowly move north they'll marry russian women uh slowly they will integrate into russian society without actually assimilating properly in siberia they will inhabit russian cities such as vladivostok for commercial and economic reasons they'll buy russian land and eventually siberia will almost fall to chinese rule without even and now mind you we know what this rhetoric this is not even rhetoric this prophecy what it sounds like but it's very much realistic. And again, he essentially mirrors St. Seraphim of Viritz's prophecy. Now, uh, Elder, Elder Archimandrite Seraphim, this priest I'm talking about, he was from Belgorod. So he was born actually in Poland, in Warsaw, and he passed away in Belgorod, which Belgorod is the city which Ukraine is bombing right now. So all these saints, interestingly, all these prophecies are coming from saints from the actual places of the hot World War III beginning conflict now, which is the Ukraine. It's a very kind of interesting connection there. But these two saints do mention this potential future conflict between Russia and China and it ending quite badly for Russia if Russians do not repent, if they do not come to orthodoxy. And that, I think, needs to be kept in mind. I'm not fear-mongering here, but these these prophecies are out there. This needs to be kept in mind, especially by the Russian people, um, whose destiny, of course, depends on their adherence to orthodoxy. I think if you reference this in context with St. Lawrence of Chernigov's prophecies, who, of course, we've spoken about multiple times, we see the Soviet Union did fall. Orthodoxy is growing in Russia, even in the Far East. In fact, the only churches, you know, that are growing in a in a, in specific kind of ways and in a more public way with within China, North Korea, are Russian Orthodox churches. The we're seeing perhaps these these warning prophecies be be put away by God, and that China seems to be moving closer to a friendship with Russia and even help them with their confrontation with the West. And as St. Lawrence said, the Russians, you know, in some of these areas will be greeted by the Ukrainians as liberators, and ultimately they will win after the schism had come out of Ukraine. So it seems that in these regards, these are, these are coming to pass in that, in that way, like in, in, in this specific manifestation, being reality, being the only way that they could have happened. So it shows that perhaps the warnings of, of the saints seraphim as referenced were heeded and there was the necessary repentance for something like that to not occur. Of course, we shall see. But, of course, after Putin's speech as well, and I want to actually get Dimitri's thoughts on the Biden visit in Poland and Ukraine, on anything that before we get into big things, Transnistria, Moldova, then the Russians rescinding some recognitions of Moldovan uh, sovereignty in certain regards. But, Dimitri, do you have anything on, on Brandon? Yeah, absolutely. I think people need to realize Biden's visit to Kiev was not the first time. You can look back at Biden. So if you recall the um, the whole Hunter Biden controversy with Burisma and all of the corruption, the Bidens are very much involved in Ukraine. All right. It's not just father, son, family business type situation, but there is more to it than just 
the Hunter Biden laptop, right? It goes a lot deeper. And in fact, Biden himself during the Obama years, as well as, I mean, Biden's been in politics for over 50 years at this point, I believe, if not 40, um, maybe a bit less, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. But Biden's been in politics for a long time. He's visited, he's visited the Ukraine on plane, unlike this time when he actually took a train to Kiev. Uh, now, Biden's visited the Ukraine multiple times. He's actually sat in the speaker's chair in the actual Ukrainian parliament, I think, once. So he's acting, uh, Ukrainians will understand me, he's been like the pun, like the the sort of chieftain of, of the Ukrainian people for a while now. The Ukrainians know Biden. Uh, maybe not Zelensky personally, but a lot of the old parliamentarians in Ukraine, they know him very well. So Biden's, this, is, this isn't his first time visit to Ukraine. He's been there a long time for uh, obviously diplomatic visits and such. But yeah, he's he's well, he knows his Ukraine quite well. And even now, you know, in old age and with his, uh, you know, greatly aggravated dementia, I think he still kind of understands the significance of, you know, actually visiting this key city and kind of giving this, you know, uh, US, we're still a foreign power, we're still kind of run things sort of imagery. Um, again, the fact that he visited, I believe, by train and didn't fly in, of course, is a great change since his previous 10 to 20 visits to Ukraine. Of course, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, it was quite disgusting, some of the images seeing Biden appear in front of the ancient churches where the relics of the Orthodox saints were, the same saints who belonged to the church, which is now being persecuted, um, both, of course, socially and morally in the U.S., but now, of course, officially persecuted, and, and the priests and bishops are persecuted, prosecuted, actually, legally in Ukraine by Zelensky and his government and his uh, attorney generals and prosecutors, and it's it's quite rough. And just seeing Biden with the churches in the background taking these photo ops uh, as, like, this is the heart of Ukraine, and near the Kiev Pichersk lover and things like that, that's quite disgusting. I, I thought that was a great affront to the Russian people, and great, I think, to a lot of Orthodox people. It's similar to Julian the Apostate appearing at the Jerusalem, uh, you know, uh, sepulchre of the Lord or uh, some other holy place near, uh, you know, uh, you can you can just imagine it's quite it's quite an affront. Now, what Biden did say, of course, was the same old that, hey, we'll be, of course, um, supporting Ukraine until the end, until the last Ukrainian, so to speak. But he did mention one thing. He, he did say that Putin can make this all stop with just one word. Now, I'm paraphrasing Biden, but he did say that he did say that the ball is in Putin's court. Putin, despite 12,000 sanctions, which are on Russia right now, this is odd, all in all calculated, right? Including the private companies as well as public sanctions. But Biden did say in his speech that Putin can stop all of this. So he's placing the accountability and the onus all on Putin. And he's essentially signaling as well to the Russians that, hey, you guys, if you guys take Putin out, all of this can stop. You guys can have McDonald's again, Adidas, OnlyFans, uh, YouTube Premium, Amazon, whatever. So it was a bit of a threat, as well as it maybe it is a, a, some sort of secret, secret diplomatic language where Biden's saying, hey, I've met Putin before, and maybe maybe you guys can slow it down a little bit. Maybe we can actually reach some sort of peace agreement. So it, it, was, it wasn't it was as—Biden's presentation in Kiev wasn't as aggressive as I thought. In a way, he even said that, hey, Putin made a mistake, but he can actually correct it. So it was kind of like—it was, it wasn't as harsh as I believe maybe Zelensky would have wanted Biden to speak. And maybe, again, this is maybe this is just Biden's dementia speaking, so— Perhaps he doesn't even know where he is. He's, of course, pumped up on all these drugs and adrenochrome. So we can't really tell what's happening. But it did seem like it was a bit on a lighter tone. And, of course, Biden traveling to Poland, to Warsaw next, was a great, was a kind of a big wake-up call. Because Poland is the one of the largest donees, I suppose, of tanks in the recent uh, you know, in the recent batch of you know, military vehicles provided to Ukraine. You'll see the statistics online that Poland is... 
providing a lot of tanks in this next, uh, you know, providing us leopards as well as other tank models to Ukraine. So there's this consideration that Poland also needs to be visited. The Polish need to be told that, hey, you guys are our front post for NATO. You guys are the primary sort of... Um, involved you know you you are the ones involved in this conflict so i and i'm here to support you so biden's visit to poland was a bit of like i guess um was for the purpose of raising their morale but notice uh conrad uh shifting over to transnistria Pridnestrovia, and moldova biden does actually mention moldova in his in his warsaw poland presentation which i think uh is very key as well because Poland doesn't have much to do with Moldova as much as, say, Romania does, but he still mentions it. So it seems like the U.S., at least the deep state and the State Department, the military-industrial complex, is interested in both Transnistria and Moldova and the future of those particular territories. Oh, yeah. And right before we go there, when it comes to, you know, Biden and and Zelensky, it seems that even the Ukrainians were actually a little bit more interested in kind of reviewing the Chinese proposals and everything. But the U.S., of course, immediately overstepping and it seems the US is it seems that their US is a bit afraid of the Russians and the Chinese clearly coming together. That's something that I think is making them a little bit nervous. But yeah, when it comes to Transnistria, we saw of course the government of Moldova earlier this week collapsed and they have a new prime minister, Maya Sandu before was a total US puppet. It seems the new person is just as much of a puppet. There was big news being spread supposedly of that the Russians were going to commit a coup in Moldova and put in a pro-Russian because the former prime minister before Sandu was very pro-Russian. He is out in the streets. I believe Dodon is his name. He's out in the streets um kind of leading these anti-NATO protests. A lot of these Moldovans are very they're pro-Russian, they're against getting dragged into this conflict on behalf of the West. And there was even rumor that Russia was going to take control of the Chisinau airport in Moldova and be able to fly troops in there. And of course, for those that don't know, Transnistria is this region along the Dniester River, the border with Moldova and Ukraine, that is part of Moldova legally, not even recognized basically legally by anybody else, but is effectively controlled by a pro-Russian separatist government and has what I believe to be about 1,500 Russian troops in it. It has a large ammunition depot, one of the largest, and it's something that Russia doesn't want to give up. It gives them, in theory, a direct way to have a pincer maneuver on Odessa, on some of the farther parts in western Ukraine. And we have rumors that the Ukrainians are going to perhaps do an assault on Transnistria. There was reinforcements on the roads going into and from Ukraine in Transnistria. Of course, they have their own military as well, which I believe has 5,000 troops. And again, this combined force of you know maybe 7,000 guys is not going to be enough to repel something that the Ukrainians combined perhaps with the Moldovans would want to do. And we're going to see if Russia has a response. Of course, we don't think that I don't think that Russia could afford necessarily to give that up. And it seems that if Russia is going to do something, they would need to secure the kind of southern exclave of Ukraine west of Odessa to then be able to supply Tiraspol, which is the capital of Transnistria, with the necessary supplies that they would need to resist some kind of Ukrainian takeover. And eventually, most likely if that happened, Russia would use that resupply operation from Crimea. They would, that's where it would go. They would use that to then launch another assault to Odessa and fully complete the land bridge as well as the Black Sea being occupied entirely for Russia. So there's some other things going on with Transnistria and everything. Dimitri, I want to hear your thoughts. 
Yeah, so what Conrad's mentioning here is essentially the potential Russian huge naval as well as uh, air assault upon the uh, the western bank of you know of the black sea some, uh, adjacent to odessa of course i don't believe the russians and i don't think conrad either i don't think the russians will straight away go into a siege of the, you know odessa which was a pretty significant city based on the russians you know recent reputation of, of sieging you know cities successfully or not kherson was probably the best example of russians taking it quite quickly but i believe odessa has been getting uh you know at least spoken of since the beginning of the war so i think odessa is very very much prepared by the Ukrainians for a siege. But yes, the Russian goal would be to resupply Transnistria. And the only way to do that, and to, of course, support Transnistria military, would be to drop their forces off in the Odessa, you can call it the Odessa Oblast, I suppose, adjacent to the Black Sea via ships and, of course, a great, you know, helicopters and, you know, of course, begin the land assault past Moldova all the way into Transnistria, maybe even crossing the Moldovan border, which... Would naturally, Moldova isn't a NATO member, so this isn't going to trigger Article 5. But if the Moldovans don't want to get involved, they really need to stay out of not only Transnistria, but also allow the Russians to cross their territory in order to quickly get to Transnistria, which will be key. And of course, there will be international outrage, but how far can this outrage go? You know, past the 12,000 sanctions? Probably nowhere. So Moldova will have to sit there quietly and wait for the Russians to hypothetically uh, process all their troops, assist Transnistria, protect it from the Ukrainian invasion. As you said, Conrad, there's no way the Russians want to give all of these Soviet-era depots and military uh, ammunition storage, uh, you know, storage warehouses to to the Ukrainians, because some of the Ukrainian equipment, sure, it does belong to NATO. They, they, They use NATO ammunition, NATO rounds, NATO bombs, but... Again, half of the Ukrainian military at least still uses its old Soviet technology, you know, some, especially some of the artillery shells. They still use some of that Soviet-type uh, ammunition, which are sto- stored in Transnistria. Now, on top of this, we may see many provocations. Like there, there was you know, people speaking about Russia potentially causing a false flag nuclear reactor explosion in Ukraine, actually to prevent Ukrainians from, of course, assaulting west into Transnistria. There's also talk about... You know, just like the Nord Stream one, you know, mysteriously was you know blown up by uh, a, some sort of secret power. Now it turns out it was Norwegians working with Americans. Of course, after the famous uh, article was released. Now, of course, that's the, you know that's kind of still the jury's still out on that, but we do believe it's probably the U.S. that was behind that. But there may be a lot of false flags within Transnistria in the coming weeks. For example, these ammunition depots actually exploding because we did see. Remember Russia bombing some of the depots in near Lvov on the west side of Ukraine, and the explosions were akin to something nuclear. They looked enormous, like the huge mushrooms, of course. And so there may be mysterious explosions within Transnistria even even before the Ukrainians actually begin their assault, and the Ukrainians may use this as some sort of leeway to say, hey, Transnistrians need our assistance, let's go help them out. So there could be all kinds of provocations. We're talking about CIA agents, we're talking about um, all kinds of black ops. So, of course, a lot of pressure in Transnistria now. Their president is incredibly based. He's... uh, not only red-pilled on, say, Russian history of Vadim Krasnoselsky, but he's also somewhat of an Orthodox monarchist. He's an Orthodox Christian himself, and he's a, he has quite a good reputation amongst Russians. He actually loves Russian culture, Russian history, and he understands Transnistria's part, or Pridnestrovia, as it's called in Russian. 
uh, as it you know relates to Russia. Now, an interesting note before I hand it off, Conrad. Uh, of course, everybody's everybody knows the famous uh, military commentator and the former um, minister of defense of Donetsk, uh, Igor Stadilkov, the one who ostensibly created the entire conflict in 2014. Allegedly, you know, the Ukrainians blame him for moving from Crimea to Slavyansk and starting the entire war. But Stadilkov did fight actually in the Transnistrian civil war uh, against Moldova in 1991-92. In fact, that's primarily where he got his military experience prior to Chechnya. So Strelkov is a veteran of the Prydnestrovia conflicts uh, right as the Soviet Union fell apart. So this is kind of coming full circle. Like this great guy, I guess, uh, you know, this great character of recent history who began the entire thing, his career, his military career began in Prydnestrovia, Transnistria, and now... Transnistria Prydnestrovia seems to be like this potential hypothetical breaking point for the entire conflict. It is the opening of the second front, so to speak, now that the East is heavily occupied by the Russians. So it's quite interesting, I think, what you know what we potentially could see from this. It's and somewhat horrifying. Well, for us map artists, you know, it really scratches that itch. I mean, this is just a little unrecognized breakaway microstate along a river. It's a few highways and towns strung together on a map. But and there's less than 400,000 people that live there now, but yet they're becoming a linchpin of, of civilizational conflict. And the quote, one of the best quotes from Vadim Krasnoselsky III, president of Transnistria, he said, For some reason we are considered only a fragment of the Soviet Union, a fragment of Lenin, etc. No, that's not true. We, if we are a splinter, then of the Russian Empire, saying that he identifies at least Transnistria as part of the Russian Empire, which people find funny because the Transnistrian flag has a hammer and sickle on it and everything. But again, we understand that the, the usage of these signals has much more to do with a combination of perhaps a nostalgia for a time before the 90s, as well as just a claim to legitimacy against the nation states that popped up around it. Transnistria claims that they were never asked and that they never had a say in the formation of these new states after the fall of the Soviet Union, whether it was Moldova, Ukraine, any of the, these these places that got broken up as the former Russian Empire, then the Soviet Union got balkanized. And so they are, of course, going to hold on to those symbols because it is how they are able to maintain legitimacy. And let's be real, does Transnistria have the capability to remake a flag right now? <laughs> I mean, I don't think so. So um, I think we're about to see some big changes there. But when it comes to Moldova, I mean, of course, the split in Moldova is whether or not they want to rejoin Romania. For those that don't know, Moldovans speak Romanian. Moldova has a lot of Russians in it too, especially Transnistria. So it's not to say that there isn't an argument there, but the Moldovan Orthodox Church is also directly under the Moscow Patriarchate. And it's important to note that the Moldovan Orthodox Church was one of the most based churches, whether it was during COVID or during any of the crazy nonsense that's happened in the past five years, then their bishops and metropolitans have stood very strong. So I have a lot of respect for the Moldovan Orthodox Church. But we know that, I think it's already slightly happening, but there's going to be even more of a push, likely aided by the U.S. for perhaps Moldovan autocephaly, or who knows what else we'll see. So especially if with Transnistria getting involved, you know, Moldova will become, who knows, if Transnistria goes and becomes part of, you know, the new annexed territory of Russia, they'll probably work hard to get Moldova into NATO. And Russia's going to have to use some of its soft power to at the very least secure it as a neutral state. And, you know, we know where that whole neutral state NATO talk goes, and we've been in that for over a year now. So things are getting interesting, to say the least. Yeah, that's right. There is that constant pressure, at least on the Moldovan Orthodox Church, from its larger neighbor, I guess, the the 
at the moment the, the Romanian Orthodox Church, of course, wishes to absorb the Moldovan people as well as perhaps kick out the Russian Orthodox Church from Moldova and kind of take on the Moldovan people as as its own. Now, this has been, of course, a, a, a point of discussion at least for at least two centuries now. So it's kind of it's kind of an old gripe between the Russian and the and the Romanian Church. All that needs to be said here is that the Romanian Orthodox Church is by far the youngest Orthodox Church which has a patriarch. Just for those in the know, they will probably understand. There's also the consideration that the Moldovan, I mean, sorry, apologies, the Romanian Orthodox Church did have huge issues in the 1930s and 40s with a lot of Freemasonry, as well as, um, of course, now, now that being said, the Romanian Orthodox Church has come back from all of these uh, weird political ideals as well as falling into liberalism and then, of course, falling to communism through its great new martyrs and saints of the 20th century. Some of the most amazing saints similar to those in Russia who, you know, were tortured and killed under communism for Christ came out of Romania. So the Romanian Orthodox saints, as well as Romanian culture, which is deeply Orthodox, or, you know, despite Romania being a member of NATO and a member of the EU and, you know, the, its political elites being quite liberal and quite degenerate, the Romanian people in general are very pious, and this is reflected in their recent saints. Canonizations, which they have not been afraid to canonize, especially some of the um, so-called fascist saints, who actually served in really right-wing circles and essentially became very pious Orthodox monks and uh, people in, you know, some of the saints of the prisons, if you know, you know. Uh, we can go into that on a special episode in the future. But the Romanian church has a very deep history, and Moldova is the most painful point for it, at least between the relations between the Russian and the Romanian church. They break a lot on the Moldovan question. And yes, you can't, I can't really say I... I would support the moving of these Russian dioceses away from Moldova because they've been doing such a good job actually proselytizing and even protecting the Orthodox people from COVID, at least from the misinformation of the pandemic, right? In the last recent years, as, as Conrad has pointed out, like they've been incredibly red-pilled on the entire thing. And the Moldovan government is one of the most corrupt as well as uh, pro-Western, uh, like it's, it's equivalent to maybe that of Finland and Estonia. It's quite bad, actually. And despite that, the church has withstood all this pressure. And my fear is, Conrad, that, you know, as this conflict, of course, escalates in Moldova and Transnistria, we may see similar sort of pressures on the Orthodox Church. Now that Zelensky and his government have shown us that, you know, this sort of neo-Nazi attitude towards churches, it's kind of acceptable to openly begin persecuting them and accusing them of being pro-Russian. If Russian troops fail to do whatever they will do, hypothetically, in Odessa and Transnistria, that we may see persecution on the Orthodox Church in Moldova as well, at least on the Russian Orthodox Church and kind of the Romanian Church moves in as the legitimate heir, um, which is you know very, very possible. I'm just kind of speaking hypothetically here, but very likely. And this may cause huge problems for the Orthodox people, like just as we saw recently in the monasteries in Ukraine. So um, that's, that's a huge problem there. I think Romania really needs to be careful. And again, there's nothing wrong with having historical grievances across national lines that are reflected perhaps in certain aspects of church. That's, that's what, that's, that's the nature of national, natural church, national churches. I mean, just look at the history of Bulgaria and the ecumenical patriarchate to say it's, it got ugly, but I think Romania really would be wise to not get pulled into, get tempted with that fruit of, you know, perhaps expanding territory that the state department will try to try to tempt them with. I think that would that would lead to nothing but more disaster and division, like we see in Ukraine with the EP, and we see what else the EP is getting up to, even besides the schismatic supporting behavior. It's just liberalism. It's it's modern, terrible academic theology. 
and that's nothing that orthodoxy, there's nothing to do with orthodoxy. And Romania is making a lot of great progress. They're building the largest orthodox church in the world. I believe it's the tallest church in the world, the People's Salvation Cathedral. It will be finished, I believe, this year or next year, and I hope to visit it someday. But I, I do hope that they don't squander any of those things by unfortunately getting roped into a silly geopolitical conflict by people that hate Christianity. And Moldova, of course, is actually, I believe, the most Christian country in the world, as well as being the most Orthodox country in the world, I believe, with 99% of their population identifying as Orthodox Christian. They are, of course, also the second poorest nation in Europe after Ukraine, of course, which I would always tell people when they say that Ukraine was better off siding with the West, that, well, if siding with the West gets you a lower GDP per capita than Moldova, then that's then that's good. And of course, Moldova is not known as being a particularly successful country. And people will say, oh, that's because of backwater, you know, Russia controlled, blah, blah, blah. Well, in reality, it's a deeply orthodox people being occupied and run by the most corrupt pro-Westerners around. And as Dimitri said, if the Transnistria thing happens, which I believe 2023 will likely be the year that something like that does go down, if they move in there, and of course, we'll have to move into Moldova proper to do it, at the very least... They need to get Dodon or some pro-Russian in the government of Moldova ASAP to prevent a disaster like Moldova entering NATO from actually occurring. Yeah, that's right. So we may actually see Moldova openly, you know, become engaged in the conflict. The first, I guess, the first of the two, like the first third nation, we all thought it was Belarus, but it may actually be Moldova getting directly involved. And Belarus, of course, has supported Russia greatly by providing its hospitals for and ICU rooms and emergency rooms for Russian soldiers wounded in the conflict since the beginning, since the Russians landed at Gostomel Airport. So that's been kind of in the know, but officially Belarus is not involved and Moldova isn't involved either, but we will see perhaps one of those two nations become, of course, uh, officially involved in the conflict, not just by providing humanitarian aid and military aid, but are already as, a, as an actual player in this great geopolitical game. Now, one thing I wanted to mention, you mentioned the largest, of course, church in Moldova. Now, uh, sorry, in Romania being built, the, the largest Orthodox cathedral, the tallest cathedral in the world. Prior to this, of course, we, I believe it was the a Saint Salva Cathedral in uh, Belgrade, Serbia. So we also, we, it's almost as if we see these Eastern European countries, which don't have the largest Orthodox populations, but they're almost even outdoing Russians. So Russia, in terms of constructing something as enormous to, uh, you know, engage the outside world, showing them a look, Orthodoxy is strong. Russia building, of course, the military cathedral, finishing it in 2020. But yeah, it's it's quite amazing how these Orthodox countries are actually putting in taxpayer national dollars and as well as, you know, private donations to fund these great projects. And I guess we'll speak soon about the one of the Antichrist projects in the Middle East that's opening up. But this it's good to see that the Orthodox nations for better or for worse, are constructing these great feats of art as well as, you know, devotions to God, essentially, these great places of prayer and contemplation. Well, maybe we see Hagia Sophia restored to its former glory in that way as well. But in Belgrade, the St. Savas Cathedral is the largest mosaic in the world. So if you love mosaics, and I love mosaics, it's one of my favorite art forms, everyone should make a point to go and visit that at some point. But again, just to wrap up Transnistria and everything and move on to some other things, like Dimitri mentioned, the what we're going to get on the Abrahamic Faith Center, the Putin speech, again, he I think it's just important to note this, that the most interesting thing he even said in the speech was actually about the START Treaty. And then after that, he then immediately goes and basically pulls out of 2012 negotiations with Moldova, recognizing commitments towards Moldova's borders and sovereignty, which... 
again, so he's making, he made a big statement regarding the SMO and the political situation right after giving that big speech, you know, pointedly not making a big show of it in a speech. So I think it's important for people to remember that when they kind of hype these things up or expect these decisions to be made in certain ways or under certain auspices. But yeah, with all that being said, there is, of course, everyone was seeing this on Orthodox Twitter. A lot of right-wing people were posting about it. There's in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, the something called the Abrahamic Faith Center is opening up. And it, of course, is a ugly postmodern building complex where supposedly Christians, Muslims, and Jews will all come together and and that's where it kind of starts to fall apart. I don't really quite know what they do with these silly ecumenical things, but I guess they just talk and worship Satan, kind of. You know, that's kind of that's. Kind of, I, I'm sorry, that's just kind of, that's 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 kind of what seems to go down. But we'll we'll probably we'll have a video. They have a silly, gross New World Order trailer about it that was below. But Dimitri, what are your thoughts on this um, on this abomination to God? Well, on the abomination, it is, of course, uh, only natural for the New World Order to develop its future religion, which the Antichrist will be the high priest of, and, of course, participating. Or maybe it's just the, a religion for the plebs, for the um, goyim, as they're called uh, in, certain, in certain circles. But this particular abhorrence... On, uh, you know, in in the in the world has been ongoing for a while now. If you recall the famous uh, portrait of Napoleon actually being crowned Emperor of France, it occurs in a uh, apparently a Catholic church of crosses. But what people forget is that that particular Catholic church was converted into a church of the divine being by. Um, by the French revolutionaries. So the church actually didn't have a single cross at the time when Napoleon was crowned Emperor of France. So notice. This Masonic religion, this uh, overall worship of a great deity, this ecumenical project has been around since at least the time of the French Revolution. Napoleon, of course, being a great Freemason, Napoleon's brother, Joseph Bonaparte being the, you know, the leading, uh, actually grandmaster of all Freemasons around the world. So very Masonic, very, um, almost, you can say Marxist in a way, like we spoke about the recent, um, indulgence of, you know, Marxists actually believing in this common human, uh, human, development and uh kind of adherence to a world religion to one world religion we see this of course with the pope being involved kissing the quran and previous you know the previous popes being involved in ecumenism quite heavily and this is just the latest chapter of this great anti-christian project of uniting a so-called abrahamic religions which uh, mind you judaism christianity and islam of course i'm speaking generally here about christianity they all understand abraham in very different ways like for example we believe when the free angels appeared to abraham that was of course an image a a sort of precursor to the to the whole the tr holy trinity being revealed now the jews obviously see it in a different way the muslims you know obviously they won't they won't even speak about this sort of thing because they don't have icons. So all all these different faiths that apparently have a commonality in Abraham are very it's that that's not exactly the case. So this union is a false one. And the fact that it's happening in the UAE, very interesting, Conrad, because we saw recently the whole Dubai craze with, you know, people like Andrew Tate, all these uh, online entrepreneurs actually being involved in the whole UAE Dubai sort of involvement in the, you know, these new great oil rich middle eastern states people like sneko for example converting to islam recently like i know this is a bit of a side subject but it does show that these great nations which are very much involved with the petrodollar are again they're not independent cal it's not some sort of muslim caliphate that's based and red-pilled and really based on islam no it's a money-hungry again base of the new world order and yes it's probably hiding behind 
pious Islam because it has Mecca and Medina and all the so-called holy sites of Islam. But that is to consider, we do have to consider the fact that all of these princes, all of these leaders are in some way involved, at least with the New World Order and with these movements. And the fact that this is this abhorrence is being built in the UAE is another, I guess, point of evidence for this particular thesis that, hey, these, these countries may look attractive to for residents and they, they may be based and they may have low crime rates and it's a high-trust society, but there, there are these downsides. These places are, of course, uh, pro, almost like project cities for the future for the future country which the Antichrist will will run, which the country is not that far away, frankly. I'm not going to name it, but yeah, it's all there in the Middle East. Well, and of course, I believe the main financiers behind this is the Vatican. They're very committed to this kind of ecumenism, specifically with other Christians and Muslims. And again, the trailer, really creepy, really corporate. There's a point where like three kids, one all clearly, I guess, Jewish, Muslim, and then the Christian is always the most ambiguous. They don't even like showing as many Christian symbols in these things. And they all run up with these three glowing cubes and like put them down. And it's like, oh, great. Come on. Can we allow with the occult symbolism? But unfortunately in the video, you also see what at first are majority, I believe, Byzantine Catholic and Copts. But there is what I believe has been identified as one Greek Orthodox representative of some sort, which we always hate to see the ecumenical patriarch give into its uh, more ecumenist leanings and send people to these silly things. But not just, as Demetria mentioned, Sneeko, Andrew Tate, some of these other characters getting involved in the whole based Islam thing, but this Abrahamic faith center, not to bring this joker up again, but who does that sound like to you? It sounds a little bit like Haas to me and his based Abrahamic alliance against Satan or whatever, against capitalism, you know, true communism being the Abrahamic alliance. So like Haas, I expect to see the next infrared collective meetup in the UAE at the Abrahamic faith center in 2023 looking forward to that really excited but <laughs> it's serious i mean I don't, I don't understand how haas who claims to be anti-masonic anti-globalist has never encountered like religious anti-ecumenist dialogue it shows how much he actually knows about russian orthodoxy and look again for those of you who did see the greek clergyman participating in this uh in this abominable meeting do keep in mind unfortunately the greek orthodox church in many ways, is the most liberal jurisdiction in the Orthodox Church, but they only make up a small, very small percentage of the entirety of Orthodoxy. You won't see any Serbian bishops there. You won't see any Serbian clergymen. You won't see any Russian clergymen. You won't see any clergymen from Palestine, right? Those who look after all the holy sites. You know, again, Greeks. You won't see any Antiochian Greeks there. You won't see any Georgians. You won't see any Bulgarians, Romanians, or Polish Orthodox folks. So the fact that you see certain Greeks, especially from America, participating in these events do not, and I'm speaking to the Orthodox folk listening, do not fall in heart. These things have always been happening. Um, do not lose morale over this, you know, especially at the, you know, at the, at the precipice of Great Lent. Do not let these things, um, you know, uh, bring you down, okay? So this, these things have always been taking place. We just have to keep note, and let's not judge them too harshly, but pray that these people are enlightened for the great heretical mistakes which they are making, of course. And their time will come. God will judge them in his own way. And, you know, if all things are correct, they will be defrocked appropriately by the same jurisdiction which sent them there. So, you know, things will change for the better. But it is a very small percentage of the Orthodox Church. So to say that, hey, Orthodoxy is with the Vatican participating in this degeneracy, that's not necessarily true. In the Catholic Church, the Pope himself sends these people directly. There is this top-down power in the Orthodox Church, it's one particular jurisdiction responsible for the degeneracy in the Ukraine, 
the degeneracy in the U.S. And again, this uh, abominable meeting, which Conrad has described for us so aptly, happening in, of course, the Islamic world. And notice how the Jerusalem Patriarchate, which actually lives side by side with Palestinians, who are probably the most, I guess, from a Muslim perspective, the most martyred of Muslim people, isn't participating in these degenerate ecumenist meetings, right? They literally live in on the West Bank in Gaza, the Orthodox Greeks, and even they don't participate in this degeneracy. Meanwhile, you have American Greeks coming to UAE, coming to um, Saudi Arabia, actually, you know, claiming that, hey, we have a common Abrahamic religion, while the real cooperation between these people living side by side, not mixing, but actually, you know, cooperating in terms of teaching each other, perhaps, perhaps proselytizing to each other, you know, trying to convert one another without mixing their religions into one anti-Christian abomination is happening in Palestine, which a lot of the land is being is occupied by Israel right now. And, and of course, the Jews really don't like the fact that the Orthodox Christian Greeks, as well as Orthodox Christian Palestinians, are cooperating with the Muslim Palestinians so closely. I mean, they've hated this fact for the last 80 years. And of course, the Orthodox Greeks also cooperate with the Israeli authorities as far as possible, especially abiding by real estate, as well as some of the other laws relating to, you know, the tenureship over certain property. This is really important uh, in the Holy Land. But again, that's a good view of how cooperation works, as well as in the Russia, in Russia, let's just mention Muslim Christian cooperation in Russia. Notice how Kadyrov's forces have their own mullahs actually participating in in separate divisions of purely Muslim troops. You know, they, they pray in their own Muslim fashion several times a week. You know, they're participating in the SMO in their own complete way without actually bringing bringing them. You know, without, without sort of joining services and having ecumenical prayers. Between Muslims and Christians in the same places, I think that's also very stark, right? Isn't it, Conrad? Because we see well, people have accused Russia of saying, "Hey, Russia's kind of working with the Muslims against Orthodox, but against Orthodox Ukrainians, so to speak." But no, that's not the case. The Russians and the Muslims are simply working side by side, but they're not actually mixing religions. This is what people need to understand, and this is reflective in the Russian history, which was never ecumenical to begin with. And Russians have lived side by side with Muslims. Yes, we've had our fair share of wars between Islam, and I think both sides are quite proud of the some of the heroic conflicts we've had, such as you know, the siege of Kazan, the siege of Astrakhan, um, you know, some of the battles between the Russians and the Turks have been very epic, and, you know, a lot of movies and series should be filmed about them, but again, ecumenism has no room in Russia, and has no room in any Christian-Muslim dialogue. It, dialogue needs to be different, and I think this is not the way to go. This is degeneracy, abhorrence, this is anti-Christian, and Muslims would agree with me here, I think. And many people will perhaps try to dunk on Russia and post like a big picture of like a call to prayer at a big mosque in Moscow or St. Petersburg. But what people don't realize is that outside of Chechnya and Dagestan and other, maybe a few places where there's more Tartars, there's almost no mosques in Russia. That's why like there's a few big ones in these cities and all the Muslims go to them because Russia explicitly and legally effectively and through things like property law enforce Christianity as the majority public religion. And that's, everybody knows that. And the Muslims appreciate that. That was something that they worked out and helped bring peace to the conflicts in those Muslim regions that, again, were raging in just in the 21st century. And again, if people don't know what ecumenism is, maybe you're not Orthodox, I'm going to read something from Metropolitan Seraphim of Piraeus, who, again, when it comes to the Greek church, even within them, you should really distinguish, like the ecumenical patriarch itself is much worse on this than the actual Church of Athens. Again, it's basically the Phanar with a few island bishops and mainland Greek bishops that 
really do all of this. The vast majority of Greek bishops and priests, of course, want nothing to do with this. And Metropolitan Seraphim, he says, this terrible heresy, the product of modern attempts of religious unification of mankind, has sprung off, ver has sprung off various heretical theories, such as branch theory, dogmatic minimalism, baptismal unity, sister churches, extended ecclesiology, etc., that are incompatible with the dogmatic teaching of our church and with its timeless belief that it alone is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church as we profess in the symbol of the faith. And so anything short of that is ecumenism, which is condemned in the Russian Orthodox Church abroad, is largely condemned across Orthodoxy at this point, and even, and in many ways, I think the church is moving positively in most circles against the silly kind of idea, especially after the whole attempt with reunion with the Anglicans, perhaps in the 20th century that didn't come about. I think people are realizing that it's better to stick to our traditions and the people that will come will come. Yeah, that's right. And for those that need to be, of course, uh, you know, for those that need actual authoritative statements from councils and such, ecumenism is such a new heresy, at least in the Orthodox world, and perhaps it's accepted in Protestant and Catholic circles. But I'm just letting you know, if you're Orthodox and you're interested in ecumenism and you're interested in promoting this false idea, just keep in mind you're investing in Dogecoin or Shiba, okay? This thing will be condemned very soon at a council, and you will look stupid. You will need to of course, confess before a priest, you'll need to repent for pushing this heresy for many years. It's almost like spreading rumors and gossip, which are also sins. Do not invest in something which will inherently be condemned by the church in a future council. This is not a wise idea. It's similar to, of course, supporting Zelensky in Ukraine. You will look silly after we canonize some of the saints, some of the priests who have been just killed by Zelensky and his government, and, of course, killed by Ukrainian SBU. When we uncover what's been going on, which Orthodox people have been getting tortured and killed in the in Kiev's, uh, in some of the Kiev basements by the SBU troops, when we, of course, canonize some of the new, new martyrs, when miracles start happening, when this veneration is explicit in 50 years' time, when some of the monks come forward and explain exactly what's been happening at these monasteries, what kind of de desecration and sacrilege. If you've been supporting Ukraine now and in the last year or so, it's time to actually uh, withdraw your investments, you know, sell your Dogecoin, sell your Shiba coin, do not waste time supporting something which will be a loss for you in the future, spiritually speaking. And of course, uh, you know, the spirit matters a lot more than material things. So this is, this is more important than simply knowing where to invest your money, okay? Uh, so, of course, people need to consider that. And the same thing goes for ecumenism, which people say, well, it hasn't been condemned yet. Perhaps we could indulge in it. Perhaps it's just diplomatic. No, this is... This is what we're telling you this as people who've been experiencing and studying Orthodoxy for many years now at a time. And priests and bishops will, of course underline our words as well as you know, some of the statements from the saints there isn't a single saint who promotes ecumenism it's already you know the verdict is already out we're just waiting for the judge to uh you know swing the hammer it's already done so i'm just letting all the Orthodox folks know who are listening who maybe have these sort of indulgent thoughts or perhaps maybe ecumenism isn't that bad it hasn't been condemned yet it will be okay so it's just to, it's just a good idea to be wise and discernful because in the future you may be uh brought to great shame Oh, very well put. I think before we move on to some final words about general World War III prognosis situation in some other hot zones, I wanted to give some other news from the church. The Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese of North America has a new metropolitan. This archdiocese is, of course, the largest in the Antiochian church. It includes five or six metropol uh, dioceses under with its own bishops. I 
in the Diocese of Wichita. And our new Metropolitan is Metropolitan Saba Esper. Of the three options, he was the one who is currently residing in the Levant. The other two options, Metropolitan Nicholas, Bishop Nicholas and Bishop John, were both in America already. To give a brief breakdown, the idea was basically like Bishop Nicholas was ostensibly the quote-unquote most conservative. Bishop John was the least conservative. Metropolitan Saba more in the middle. But again, compared to some other varieties in the church, there was not so much difference. There really wasn't a danger of getting a terrible Metropolitan in this situation, but Metropolitan Saba, many are taking it positively. My bishop, who's also retiring, Bishop Basil, uh, one of the only current tonsured monastic bishops in the Antiochian Church in America, he is believes that Metropolitan Saba is a living saint. So I'm looking out for good things in the archdiocese here. And I think the Antiochian Church has seen great positive growth. It's one of the main vectors of convert growth in the Orthodox Church in America. So keep us in your prayers and be praying for... Metropolitan Saba, Axios. Axios, indeed. And the Antiochian Church is one of the more honorable jurisdictions, not just in America for its missionary work, famous for its missionary work, going back to its cooperation with the Russian Orthodox Church and great saints such as St. Raphael of Brooklyn, but also in its recent cooperations with the Assad government as well as the Russian military and the Russian Church in Syria, actually providing aid. And, you know, recently we saw actually a lot of prayers and thoughts and humanitarian aid from the, uh, you know, from the actual Antiochian Church for the for the Turkish as well as Syrian citizens of the regions affected by the earthquakes, because if you recall, one of the one of the great earthquakes which occurred in northern Syria and southern Turkey, it actually fell on the ancient city of Antioch, which now has been reduced to rubble. Basically, that ancient city where Apostle Peter established the this line of bishops, which has come all the way down to our day has been completely destroyed and annihilated. So, you know, uh, time time and these calamities really do destroy even some of the greatest Orthodox um, sites on Earth. So we do need to keep that in mind. Everything is fleeting and not to take things for granted, especially material things such as cities and material possessions. But the Antiochian Church is one of the more honorable churches not involved in ecumenism as much as some of the other dioceses. And it's probably one of the greatest points of synthesis between the, both the Arabic world as well as the Greek world, and kind of keep, keeping the sober balance between uh, really good theology as well as uh, foreign missionary work, I think, not just in Syria, but as well as the US. And uh, Axios, the Bishop Sava, many years to him, hopefully his uh, work will bring great fruits in the United States of America. No, I think in many ways, some people are sad that we don't have a American-born or more intimately related with America metropolitan, but I think that in a lot of ways having someone from the Levant, someone who, who who's from there, from the monastic community and everything, can bring bring a lot of good to America as well. And we'll end this after this, but I think in many ways, of course, there's always the fear of, you know, the Antiochian Church has influence in the Middle East, it has influence over a lot of Middle Eastern Christians in America, it has influence over relations with Russia, because it, like, at this point, the Antiochian bishops in America are more like they they interact more with Russians than any kind of diplomat in America does. So the U S would have a vested interest in them as a f- diplomatic force and how they interact with Russians. So at this point, I'm confident the Metropolitan Saba will not give in to any NATO nonsense as I believe the Antiochian church has not up until this point, which I'm very enthusiastic about, but we've probably got to wrap this thing up in the next 10 minutes or so, but I wanted to talk about a few more general things in geopolitics with China getting involved here. It's, it's, creates a whole new interesting array of questions. India, of course, is still one of Russia's main trading partners, but China and India themselves don't really get along. And at the same time, we see 
Syria still suffering under these earthquakes, still under sanctions. Other countries are helping them out. Of course, not the United States. Turkey doubling down on their disdain for the U.S. So, as the as this World War Three question heats up, what are your uh, what are some of your thoughts on how on the next year and how this will go exterior to Russia Ukraine, but regarding the conflict? Yeah, I think. I kind of appreciated one of China's peace points regarding, um, you know, of course, I'm mentioning it again here, but uh, leaving the Cold War mentality, because remember, one of the conflicts which did take place during the Cold War, at least on the Chinese end, was its great, one of the only conflicts that ever had with India across the uh, Himalayas and Tibet, which was the Sino-Indian War. Um, It only lasted about uh, about a year, uh, no, about a month, actually, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but 1962 took place. There was a lot of diplomatic tension building up to that, but India and China, since that war in the 1960s, hasn't had a very tight relation. And in fact, both countries are heavily industrialized at this point. In many ways, they are future competitors, but, they also, but they're also key members of BRICS. Um, and just the fact that the future, of course, will be determined by which countries will sit upon the Security Council. There is, a, there is, of course, a consideration that maybe more BRIC council, BRICS nations should be involved in the, on the Security Council of the UN, which, if that has any merit, merit whatsoever, but nations such as the UK, of course, being on the, on the BRICS, um, yeah, you know, being on the Security Council and not being a member of BRICS and not being a significant world power in any way, of course, unless you... I mean, even if you count the Commonwealth, right? So, so Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and some of the other nations, the Falklands, still, it doesn't make the UK a great superpower. It doesn't really warrant it being on the Security Council. So there is this competition, there is this rise in India that, despite Chinese pressure, despite all this negative rhetoric, India does need to rise for itself. It does need to make a statement in the United Nations as a fully-fledged uh, member of the future multipolar world. Naturally, India has conflicts with its neighbor, Pakistan, and these conflicts will probably never go away. Even blaming, of course, uh, post-colonial and British colonialism, these will not reduce the conflicts on the borders there, which are really generational. In, in fact, it's similar to the conflicts between Dagestani and Dagestanis and Chechens, which will go back you know, hundreds of years and hundreds of years into the future. They'll never be resolved. And there's no real need there for anybody to really stress and do their research into those things. But that idea of China and India both rising at the same time, but having a certain tension is, uh, is of course, concerning because, as we know, the U.S., as well as some of these Western nations, are professionals at psyops and creating tensions between nations, maybe even unneededly. And so what we may see in the future, without a direct U.S.-China confrontation, maybe even preventing China from taking Taiwan, would be a, some sort of provocation on the on the Himalayan border between India and China. I think that would be the only distraction the U.S. could afford to make to kind of take China's attention away from Taiwan. That's my kind of forecast. And that would, in a way, really escalate matters into a World War Three type scenario. Because, of course, India and China are both nuclear nations. Pakistan also has nuclear weapons. So all of these great Asian nations we're speaking about um, super, uh, almost, uh, you know, well, not quite superpowers yet, but they're almost at the cusp of becoming superpowers. So there is that consideration of black ops, psyop operations, which we've seen. Of course, the Nord Stream 1 should be the greatest example that these conspiratorial black ops can happen and they could literally change the state relations of nations. Germany and Russian relations in the next 10 years will not be the same because the Nord Stream 1 pipeline went down. People need to keep this in mind. It's very easy or maybe it's not easy, but 
the, the U.S. and some of these other nations with, and of course, we're not talking about the American people, but the American deep state, the military industrial complex is interested in creating chaos abroad. And one of the ways in which chaos can be created is and deep chaos in Asia could be between India and China. And of course, we spoke, I think we mentioned the fact that Azerbaijan and Iran also have tensions there. And mind you, Iran recently has has, of course, officially asked again in February of this year to become a member of BRICS, because Iran is one of the nations which probably does fit under that BRIC category and does want to be a member of the future multipolar order and wants to have a seat at the table. And it's, I think it absolutely has the right to do that. But the problem with Iran is, of course, it's getting hit by not, not just sanctions, but also Israeli provocations, as well as possible Azerbaijani provocations in the future. If Turkey recovers, Turkey, of course, looks after Azerbaijan as their younger brother. There's there's a lot of potential, of course, for the coming cold, hot war, you know, in this in this World War scenario we're living in now to escalate. And a lot of points. And again, just as the assassination of the Archduke that began World War One, it only takes a few things to get these to get these events to begin. Remember, it wasn't didn't take much for the Donetsk Lugansk conflict to be sparked eight years ago. It took, you know. Ukrainian provocation as well as Strelkov and 50 of his comrades actually standing up against that. So let's keep that in mind. Well, I think Zog has a pretty vested interest in keeping China and India fighting, but we do await at bated breath our the upcoming and possible future melee-only India-China clash footage. I've seen China unveil their new spiked clubs, so I'm afraid it may get a bit uglier than just whacking with sticks and accidentally driving people off cliffs. I'm kidding, of course. I don't want anyone to get hurt. But those videos always make me laugh because if you don't know, in the Himalayan corridor between India and China, they don't, they've all like put aside guns and bullets and only have agreed to use melee weapons because they just shoot each other over the mountain passes. <laughs> it's just like every once in a while, they just start hitting each other with sticks over the, over the little fences and the high Himalayas. But yeah, and you were talking about Azerbaijan, Iran, everything. And again, to end this, I want to, I'm going to read a bit from jo Saint, uh, Elder Joseph of Vathopedi, who passed away in 2009, a disciple of St. Joseph the Hesychast, will likely be canonized in the future. He had some things to say about World War III, but when it comes to the Levant, North Africa, Greece, again, we know Greece is a NATO member, we know Greece is heavily in debt to the West, but their sheer civilizational hatred and disdain for Turkey in many ways puts them in a more cultural, civilizational sense, alongside someone like Russia and these other powers. For example, Greece just strengthened military relations with Egypt, agreeing to do more exercises together. And Egypt and Greece will share an interest in collectively expanding their exclusive economic zones in and around Cyprus to prevent Turkey from expanding their exclusive economic zone from their occupied territory of northern Cyprus, which they're all using to find these huge natural gas and oil deposits. And of course, allying yourself with Egypt that puts is that puts Greece and and there's allies at odds with Israel, Azerbaijan, ostensibly Iran as well. I mean, ostensibly allying you with Iran, going against Azerbaijan, Israel, Turkey. So you can start to see how that that block that is is referenced in Saint Paisios and Elder Joseph, as we talk about, as I'm going to talk about in a second. That you can see how that block arises when you kind of look directly underneath some of the surface level alliances and immediate political realities and understand the cultural meta that that, that comes with all of these regions yeah and so 
as we've seen the Levant with Greece in particular, many people say, well, Greece is, of course, not just deeply involved in the West, but also its its interests lie in the Western civilization because, you know, frankly, its history as well as some of the indebtedness, as Conrad mentioned, not just to the IMF, but also to um, the Lend-Lease program and the rebuilding post-World War II, which you know, the US lended millions, if not billions of dollars to Greece over the last 80 years. There is that consideration. And the US, mind you, assisted Greece in its defense against communism. Greece never fell to communism, unlike Yugoslavia, Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania. So Greece was that bulwark. So the Greeks do have some sort of love for that Western NATO bloc only because it goes back to that communist history. So again, communism and the sort of outcomes of World War II really did determine a lot of these relations. We spoke about Transnistria, Moldova, but also in that Greek theater, it did determine some of the, um, I guess, uh, future outcomes. But yes, Greece and Turkey... Again, it's similar to Pakistan and India. These nations will most likely never, never kind of uh, have a long-lasting alliance or a long-lasting peace treaty, simply because there is there is culture and history going so far back with a lot of hatred, a lot of baggage in a way, which even does, despite the most uh, pious Christians of Greece, there's still this consideration that we need to save the Orthodox people living in Turkey from Turkish occupation. There is that kind of... Uh, almost not a defensive, but almost an offensive attitude of the Greeks towards Turkey. They just say, well, we need to free the land because, hey, there's these ancient Turkish monasteries, or not Turkish, apologies, but Turkish and Greek monasteries and holy sites, which we need to free. So it's almost like a the Hellenic people have almost like this uh, Western Crusader attitude towards Turkey and Anatolia. I cannot blame them for that, but that is simply the reality. It is a reconquista, which the Greeks are considering and have been considering at least for the last 100 to 200 years since the early 90s. 19th century since the revolution began. So, and this Reconquista, remember the Reconquista in Spain, it took 700 years. For the Greeks, they're only 200 years into it. So, there's a long time to go, and they're not going to stop, at least ideologically. That's what Hellenism is essentially based on. It's uh, viewing Turkey as an adversary. And yes, these attitudes, as you can probably imagine, we spoke about India and China and all these black ops and psyops and provocations. These attitudes could be, of course, used by by the uh, darker powers of the world, which, you know, control and run things behind the scenes and cause these provocations, such as the Nord Stream 1 explosion. Now, one other thing I wanted to mention, there are, of course, mysterious things which took place, um, which you may want to research. There was a patriarch of Alexandria who was a Greek. Um, we mentioned the Greek-Egyptian relations. He actually lived in, lived in Alexandria, Egypt, and he actually died in a helicopter accident over some some Greek islands on his flight to Athens, I believe. So that was a bit of a mysterious thing which occurred in the 1980s. Perhaps we'll speak about it in a separate video, but there were very mysterious things which occurred on the Greek-Turkish border in the past, which it did involve the church as well, which, again, has escalated, at least mentally in the eyes of the Greeks, things to some sort of level. So psyops do happen, provocations happen, uh, people get assassinated, people, um, you know, terrorist acts occur. These things are to be expected, unfortunately, in this fallen, sinful world. And uh, Conrad's going to give us a citation from the future saint who we'll speak about in one of our premium episodes. Um, just keep in mind... The Greek-Turkish question is one which goes back 200 years and may continue on into the future, regardless of which side you take. It goes back even farther than that, back even to the earliest days of Islam versus Byzantium. So it's a true age-old thing. But Elder Joseph of Atopedia, I'm going to read a little bit of what he says, summarize some of it, because he cuts in with a lot of other things. But he said this in the early 2000s. He was, again, a disciple of St. Joseph the Hezekiah, a resident of Mount Athos. And he's talking about here after 
Russia attacks Turkey in the context of a lot of those prophecies that we've talked about before that have come regarding the Bosphorus Straits. He says Russia will want to hold on to it, Constantinople, but they will not be able to. All this will last about two to three months. Russia will want to settle down in this place, in the Bosphorus Straits as well, but Israel will make a move together with the Americans. All of them will move first and gather in the region of Byzantium. He's talking about Constantinople, Cappadocia, those regions. And he says, because Byzantium has been ripped away by the Vatican and it was delivered to the Turks. He's he's referencing uniatism and stuff that went on at the fall of Constantinople. He says, therefore now the shameful descendants of their ancestors who are now called Europeans will be gathered together in the region of Byzantium according to God's justice. And now I'm going to summarize the rest of it. He basically just talks about this being a big site of a battle of World War III in Istanbul. He talks about the Japanese sending many mercenaries, the Americans sending many mercenaries. You know, we're seeing a lot of mercenaries going and dying in Ukraine. So this reality, this doesn't seem as crazy as probably when he was talking about this in the 2000s. And we're even seeing Japan now remilitarizing, as I think the U.S. realizes they're going to need that that base and they're going to need that military force to help them against a, a future confrontation with China. So all this stuff is very interesting, of course. And Elder Joseph, again, he only passed away in 2009. So we ultimately do await his canonization. And there are many people today who heard him speak. And you can watch the full video of his on Uncreated Light Press on the YouTube channel there. I'll have it linked below. But with all that being said, we're probably about time to wrap it up. This will be our last video before Lent. So we wish everybody in the church a happy and repentful and prayerful Lent that you would keep the fast as best you can and go to as many services as you can. I guess that's our charge to you. But with all that, uh, I'll do the plugs in a sec unless there's anything you want to say, Dimitri. Just a short message to all the Orthodox folks. As as Conrad said, have a happy Lent. Keep a smile on your face. Don't show people that, hey, I'm fasting, I'm having a hard time, I'm not getting my calories in. It's a, it's, it's difficult like a diet. That's what the saints have always, always said, you know. Uh, you have to be repentful internally as well as lead a heavy life in terms of, you know, defeats you take on yourself as well as, you know, confessing, doing your prayers every day, morning, evening, going to confession, partaking of the sacraments as, as, as often as you can, reading the scriptures, doing all of these extra things, but do not externally show it. I'll notice all of the saints in all the videos, as well as Elder Joseph, all the future saints, they always have, especially when they speak to people of this footage, they always have a big smile on their face. They're always happy because Christ is risen. The saints in heaven are watching. The angels are there with us, so do not do not despair. Do not be, despite of what you hear about in the news. In fact, if you can't, for example, handle news and affairs, simply unplug yourself from the internet because so it, it does affect some people more than others, and that is probably the recommendation your priest can give you personally. But that would be my message. So just keep a smile on your face and uh, get through the hardships of Lent. You know, uh, discipline yourselves as much as you can, and uh, through God's strength, we'll meet Easter together. Christ will be risen. Indeed, he is risen. I'm looking forward to Pascha already. But with all that being said, be sure to follow us on Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. We're going to have our first premium episode coming out this week. I promise I've also not forgotten about that Macedonia article. It's coming. Just been a bit busy. But follow us on Twitter, worldwarnow underscore. Follow me on Twitter, GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri on Twitter, OCanonist, OrthodoxCanonist. Follow us on Telegram, worldwarnowtele. That's T-E-L-E after World War Now. And uh, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, like the video, subscribe to the channel, like I said, share the video, comment, we love talking to you in the comments. Make a Substack account if you haven't already, we love talking to you in the comments there on Substack. 
And again, premium content exclusively coming there. Going to be discussing some saints that haven't been canonized in the church yet. Controversial ones, interesting ones, recent ones, a bit older ones. Great stuff to be talked about there. But with all that being said, again, we wish you all a happy Lent. We hope that you can find time to reflect on the good things that God has given us and give some time back to him. And with all that being said, uh, we'll see you next time.